0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.
1: Survivor Corps founder, Diana Barrett, joins Washington Post Live to discuss the growing number of people with long haul COVID, the mounting medical challenges they face, and her own experience with lingering symptoms. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. My guest today is COVID survivor turned patient advocate, Diana Barrent. She founded Survivor Corps, a nonprofit devoted to pushing government agencies and private health systems toward developing treatment for what we now call long COVID. Diana, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. This is a tremendous honor. Well, we're delighted to have you. And before talking about Survivor Corps, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your personal experience. You were one of the first people in your community to be diagnosed with COVID. But when did you realize you had symptoms, lingering symptoms that we now call long COVID?
0: So I had what I call an average Tylenol and Gatorade case of COVID. Um, I was not hospitalized. I was not close to being hospitalized. Um, My symptoms were somewhat severe during the acute phase or what I actually prefer to call the contagious phase. I had what I probably, what I assume was encephalitis. I was hallucinating a sleep disorder, not fatigue, but actually tremendous insomnia. Um, The list goes on. I had a pulmonary infection. I could go on, but I actually felt quite better um, after I came out of isolation. The GI issues were still really bad and I was still getting continued headaches and deep inner ear pain, but um, I felt much better. And it wasn't until several months later, I had COVID in the beginning of March. The first doctor I saw wasn't until August when I had a symptomatic relapse. And so what we are seeing is that there are really two buckets of people who have long COVID, I would actually suggest three. One are the people who are sick from day one. They are on day 520 of having a fever, of having every one of these symptoms who are completely debilitated. There's another group for which the pattern is more recrudescent, more um, relaxing and remitting, and that's what I had. And thankfully, I'm actually on the other side and I am recovered, but I am one of the lucky few. Um, And the third group is the ones who don't know yet that what damage the virus has done to them. For example, my son had a very average case and you know, he's eleven when he had COVID, and I never would have called him a long hauler. And nine months later, one of his front adult teeth fell out unprompted with no blood loss from vascular damage from COVID. So we're not I think it's a little bit premature to say who does and who doesn't have long COVID because it can act like a ticking time bomb in your body and you don't know where or when it's going to go off.
1: So Diana, when did you come up with the idea of founding Survivor Corps?
0: So I spent 18 days in isolation when I had COVID because at the time it was so new. Nobody knew how long one was contagious for. I was not taking any chances. Um, Not only was I one of the few people to get tested on the front end, but I was actually one of the only people in America to get tested on the back end twice until I cleared the virus. And that was because I was one of the first plasma donors in America. I was the first plasma donor at Columbia University. And during my time in isolation, I became completely obsessed with the idea of convalescent plasma, that if I was to become one of the first survivors of this novel disease, I would have something in my body. I would have this internal hazmat suit that I could share with other people because I had developed these miraculous antibodies and it's not a zero-sum game you don't you're not giving away your protection you're sharing it and i also realized that there was a need for survivors to partner with the scientific and medical communities so that we could engage in every trial and study available because so many of the mysteries of this novel virus lay in the bodies of survivors so i did not actually start survivor Corps as a patient advocacy group because at the time there was no patient advocacy to be done you either lived or you died Um, I started Survivor Corps on March 24th with the mission of mobilizing an army of survivors to donate plasma at the time, but more generally to support science research in every way possible by participating in every trial and study for which they qualify. We became a patient advocacy group within a few weeks because when we realized that so many of our members were surviving but far from recovery.
1: So, you're Facebook based, I think. How many? I've been briefly on your site, but how many patient members do you have now? How many people do you represent?
0: Uh, At last count, I believe it was 171,000 in our Facebook group. We also have a much larger reach through our website, survivorcore.com, which is really the most comprehensive. Um, site to get all of your answers about COVID, your practical answers. If you've been diagnosed, what do you do? How do you get monoclonal antibodies? What is the difference between a spike protein antibody test and a nucleocapsid antibody test? Breaking all of that information down in one place. And in fact, I was very proud to um, when our website by September or October of last year was inducted into the Library of Congress's digital history of COVID.
1: Wow. And so, we're at this very key moment with the Delta variant surging. How is that affecting your work?
0: Well, look, I mean, it is is—it's um, extremely frightening. And I feel like in many ways we are back at square one, arguing about masking um, and other very simple issues. And I feel like we abandoned many of our best um, sources of protection too, too early, prematurely. Um, I, I think this this delta variant is much more uh, contagious. And what worries me is we are seeing tremendous neurological impacts from the alpha strain. Um, you know, In fact, I would go so far as to say that we initially thought of COVID as a respiratory disease. We quickly understood it as a vascular and inflammatory disease, but we will look back on it largely as a neurological disease. And I fear that the fact that there is a higher viral load involved in the Delta variant and it congregates in the nose and mouth, what happens? I mean, just using common sense, it goes up the nose, it knocks out the olfactory system and what's right next to it, the vagus nerve, which controls all of our automatic functioning. Um, And I have asked plenty of doctors and scientists, like, do you think that this is a possibility? And it's yes, but we just don't know. There are too many unknowns right now. We are seeing a lot of breakthrough infections from the vaccine, which means not that the vaccine don't get vaccinated, absolutely get vaccinated. But it is only one step. And I think that we need to go back to that model that we used to use in the beginning of Swiss cheese where you had layers of Swiss cheese between you and the virus. And you know that each layer is going to have holes in it. Not one is going to be perfect, but let me tell you, the vaccine is the thickest piece of Swiss cheese with the smallest holes that you can avail yourself of. However, you need to cover up those holes. How do you do it? By still masking and not just masking, double masking and avoiding congregate settings. And the other thing is knowing that you, even after you've been vaccinated, you can still be a carrier. And remember no one under the age of 12 in this country has been vaccinated. And there are plenty of people who would love to be vaccinated, but because they are immunocompromised, they can't. And we need to make sure that we are protecting those individuals as well. And if we can be carriers, then we need to make sure that we are not. And if we, the, we need to listen to the CDC's revised guidance, which I'm thrilled that they made, but it wasn't amplified in the right way. So Diana, um,
1: Diana, know- Diana, let me just ask you another question. Where are we with the science, the key science on long-haul of treatment now?
0: Well, unfortunately, there is a complete standstill. In the research. Um, and that is because the government gave $1.15 billion to the NIH in February for long COVID research. Um, all scientists in America were given two weeks to put in their applications. That was in March. Decisions were going to be out by the end of April. We didn't hear anything. By June, they decided to create two larger, you know, uh, interim studies. And I sit on those panels and I can tell you that not a penny has been distributed for to a single scientist on long COVID. So we have so many fundamental questions about the biological mechanism behind long COVID. Are we talking about viral persistence? Are we talking about an unregulated immune response or a combination thereof? Are we talking about um, damage to the endothelial lining and infl- inflammation? All of these are pieces of it, but the research is just not going fast enough because the money hasn't been unleashed. And unfortunately, it's not the NIH's money. They are the custodian of that money, and it is meant to be distributed.
1: Diana, what treatments are in the pipeline?
0: Um, I wish I could tell you. Um, Right now, there aren't any because we first need to understand the mechanism. And so until we can do that, in fact, we started a study with Dr. Iwasaki at Yale a couple of months ago when she had floated a couple of theories on Twitter of what she thought might be responsible for long COVID. And we found that, we did a quick poll and found that of 2000 of our members, 45% were feeling symptomatic relief. Another 14% were feeling worse, I will also add. And we don't know how long that symptomatic relief lasted because it wasn't a longitudinal study. But it was enough of a clue. It was enough of a breadcrumb trail that we were able to bring it to Dr. Iwasaki and start a a joint Survivor Corps Yale study within weeks, looking at autoantibody assays before and after the vaccine to try to understand, look, the vaccine is not a cure, but it could be a very good clue. To how we develop it, where, how we develop the road to get to a therapeutic, but unfortunately, it, we're not close.
1: So maybe you could step back a little bit and just explain to me how Survivor Corps is working with scientists. You're mentioning this joint project with Yale. What's your role as Survivor Corps in that and helping that move forward?
0: So I'm so glad that you asked that because the I would say that the thing that I'm most proud of what we have done over the last year and a half is that we have transformed what it means to be a citizen scientist. We are not working on the fringes. We have transformed it into citizen scientist collaboration. This is citizen science 2.0 where citizens and science work together on an equal and valued plane. And we are able to, by doing that, not only have patients' voices heard so that we are studying the symptoms that cause the most human suffering rather than the ones that are reported most frequently, but also because we have the ability to expedite the process. So we can fill a cohort overnight. Um, we just started another study with Yale with Dr. Harlan Crumholz, looking at the neurological tremors that are torturing people with long COVID and leading to a rash of suicides and suicide ideation, and it is causing people tremendous suffering. And um, when Dr. Crumholz said to me, if you can get me 20 people with these symptoms, I'll start a study, we had a cohort of 150 people, over 150 within 24 hours, ready and ready to go the second the IRB approval comes in. That is science at warp speed, and I use that term purposefully because I do think that how do we go back to the traditional pace of science when we've uh, when we've seen how fast it can go when we're working in collaboration and with respect? And that's not to take scientists off of a pedestal, but it's to bring them down to eye level so we can speak with mutual respect and understanding.
1: You mentioned earlier on that the CDC guidance had changed. Can you just outline what the changes were?
0: Correct. So we actually did a breakthrough infection study, which um, I published with Dr. Krumholz, um a couple of weeks ago. It's on the preprint server. And um, we took that data to the CDC. And Our data, you know, the numbers were a mess because we were drawing from an obviously biased sample pool. But what it showed was the by answering a binary question is can long COVID can sorry can breakthrough infections lead to long COVID? The answer is a definitive yes. And we don't know at what rate until the CDC starts counting. So we went to the CDC with three demands. One, that we reinstitute masking indoors. Two, that we recommend that people who have been vaccinated continue to get tested and isolate when they are either exposed or symptomatic. And third, that the CDC mandates reporting of all breakthrough cases and vaccine injuries. Um, And within days, they did make those first two changes. We're waiting on the third. So again, wear your mask indoors, double mask indoors and avoid congregate settings. And if you are symptomatic or you have been exposed despite vaccination, isolate and test. We abandoned the things that got us out of the worst of this mess prematurely.
1: So Diana, this experience has really thrust you into the, the life of Washington, the agencies, not just CDC, you've mentioned and, uh, NIH and also HHS. Tell us about your experience working with Washington broadly.
0: Um, I have to t- so we, as I said, we did not start as a patient advocacy group, and we are not patient led, um, which is very unusual for a patient advocacy group. And um, I will admit, I don't admit this in many settings, but I did have um, some experience working in the government in the beginning of my career. And understanding how that works was extremely helpful in negotiating how to get these things um, our objectives met. So we need an ICD-10 code. There is no billing code right now. And understanding the mechanics of how HHS works and that it falls under CMS and understanding some of the technocratic aspects of this world has been very helpful in attempting to navigate it.
1: Right I'm sure but I will
0: say that we are working we are working hand in hand with the government um there's no data that we are producing that we are not handing over directly because we tell them every day we are here to partner with you we will we will um bring truth to power regardless of the administration but we are here to work with you hand in hand to make as much progress as possible as quickly as possible
1: So you talked briefly about breakthrough infections. I'd like to ask you more about that, because the science keeps... not the science changing, the the circumstances keep changing, and the science has to evolve in order to address those. What do we really know about breakthrough infections and the possibility of them leading to long COVID?
0: We know that as a binary question that they do. you know, there's been some question of even using the term breakthrough case because is it really, it's just really another case of COVID. Um, and so while it might keep you from having an extremely extreme symptomatic case that lands you in the hospital, although I can't count the number of breakthrough cases I've heard in the last week that have ended up in the hospital, it's one. I need to clarify something that's really important. The CDC is using the term mild in a way that we, as lay people, do not use the word mild. And they should be using the colloquial version because, according to them, A breakthrough case can lead to a mild infection. But let me explain what they mean by mild. They mean encephalitis. They mean COVID pneumonia. They mean end-stage organ failure. They mean long COVID. They mean anything that does not land you in the emergency room within those first 10 days. If you end up in the hospital two weeks later, that's
1: not counted. So you're saying that end-stage organ failure is counted as mild? It sure is,
0: if you're not hospitalized. Absolutely. Look, this is a disease that can affect any single organ that relies on blood flow. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, and I haven't taken biology since high school, but I can tell you that every single organ relies on blood flow. And so even a very average case, mild case, can lead to tooth loss, erectile dysfunction, hair loss, um, diabetes, strokes, um, loss of hearing. There is no organ that is exempt from this insidious virus. And that is so important to know that there is really no such thing as a mild case. And the fact that we are using that term is misleading people, because that's not what I consider mild. I consider hay fever mild. I consider a common cold mild. That And I think that the rest of America probably does too. And so by using we need to use the right terminology when we are communicating. And I, I'm I. I think that the people who are working at the CDC, who I work with, I have tremendous respect for them, and um, we actually helped work with them to create their interim clinical guidance on long-term COVID. And that is an iterative document. It was just a first draft. It's not perfect, but we are working with them very closely
1: on the development I, of I wonder, that. I the want to ask you about. I want to ask you about one particular organ, the brain. So we've talked about, um, you know, hearing loss, smell loss, and and other problems, but specifically some psychiatric problems, including psychosis. Can you tell me how common that is among long haulers? Well, we did a study
0: of 6,000 um, non-hospitalized patients. Remember, Survivor Corps is sitting on the largest set of data on non-hospitalized patients in the world, and the experience of non-hospitalized patients is very different than the disease trajectory of hospitalized patients because non-hospitalized patients don't receive anticoagulants, interferons, antivirals, or anything else. We're relying on, again, Gatorade and Tylenol, thoughts and prayers. And we know that this virus passes the blood-brain barrier, and we are seeing evidence of direct brain damage, and we are seeing evidence in the fact that the automatic nervous system the central nervous system is being attacked by this virus and to me those are the most frightening symptoms of this virus
1: no i thought that was there was pretty clear evidence that we don't know yet whether it's crossing the blood-bain barrier but despite that um i want to ask you specifically about psychiatric illness and whether people's neurological and other symptoms are sometimes as they used to say dismissed as psychiatric illness which was a misrepresentation Anyway, but maybe you could talk about that.
0: Absolutely. So when we did this study, we asked not just what were the most frequently reported symptoms, but what were the symptoms that were causing the most human suffering and grief? What were the symptoms that were keeping people from going back to work? The number one thing was drastic personality change Um, that came as a tremendous shock. And I think that it goes beyond that. I mean, we are seeing this happen in children. We're seeing um, the people now developing these tremors and inner vibrations that are keeping them from sleeping. It it looks like um, if you watch a video is if they're having a constant seizure. And there is no study being go- going on on this and people are going to their doctors and they are being gaslit and they're being told that it is in their head. But we don't need to look very far back in history to see that viruses generally have a pattern of having the ability to leave a um, post-viral neurological condition that can be possibly treated. And if we are looking at it as a psychiatric issue, then we're looking up the wrong alley. We need to be looking at it as a neurological issue. And especially when it's being presented in children and they are having these post-COVID long-term sequelae, largely neurological, they're having seizure disorders, they're having all kinds of, they're having psychotic episodes and it is being chalked up to the stress of the pandemic. and. Look, there are definitely mental health aspects to this. Um, I would find, I doubt that there are very few people who've had COVID or a severe case of it who have not walked away with PTSD of some kind. And I don't want to discount the mental health issue, but I also want to put a very clear line that these are neurological issues that can lead to psychiatric issues. These are not mental health issues necessarily that are leading to psychiatric issues. And I think it's being exceptionally ignored in the pediatric population.
1: Right. That, that sounds particularly tragic. And one issue I wanted to talk to you about is, is research on the link between long hauler symptoms and suicide. Are people looking into that particularly painful part of this problem?
0: I wish they were. I wish they were. And we are here screaming from the rooftops. Um, one of our members took her own life in at the end of May, um, 14 months after a debilitating fight with long-term COVID. And I have to, to add that she had an asymptomatic case. And cool. when I looked at her videos that she had recorded, she went to the neurologist the day before and showed these videos of having these tremors and she was gaslit by the neurologist. She was never able to get a positive PCR test in Cedar and Cedar Sinai turned her away 5 times. That's another problem with the CDC communication. They changed the rules, part of our guidance, our advice, but they took it and said, you no longer need to have a positive PCR or positive antibody test to be diagnosed with long term COVID. But there's a big difference between giving that as a guidance and having the centers actually employ those rules. And we are somehow stuck in the gulf between policy and real life, real world evidence.
1: Wow. So, Diana, I have a couple of uh, questions from the audience that I would like to ask you. The first one's a little bit like what we were talking about earlier, but I specifically want to ask you from Muriel Nope in Georgia, who asks, what is the data on long COVID following mild breakthrough infections with the Delta variant?
0: So um, the only thing that we can say is that we know that it can happen. Um, At what rate, we will not know until we have surveillance from the CDC, until the CDC starts counting. And this is an example of the fact that we have not learned our lessons from March and April of 2020. Low numbers, low cases, if you're not counting, don't mean low numbers. It means bad science. And we are also in the midst of creating another unrepresented, disadvantaged cohort of people who will not be able to prove that they had a positive case. And we know that an asymptomatic case can lead to long COVID. We know that the most mild case can lead to the most severe case. The most mild case of COVID can lead to the most severe case of long COVID. Um, There's no reason to believe that the same is not true for breakthrough cases. But until we start tracking, nobody knows.
1: Wow. And another question, this one comes from Susan Piers in Florida. And Susan writes, how many long haulers are prescribed steroids, which often help COVID-19 patients? What are the results and side effects?
0: Um, I have to admit that I am not a doctor. Um, I have not seen a lot of steroids being used with long-haul patients, although there is obviously an inflammatory issue. Um, I do know that steroids are often being used in the hospital too early on because then it prevents use of high titer convalescent plasma and other things because you have to remember that while steroids do reduce inflammation, they also reduce your immune response. And maybe if you're having an overactive immune immune response, that will help. But again, that one I would have to refer to an actual doctor um, I'm not fully equipped to answer that properly.
1: I think we may be having a little bit of difficulty with sound. If you can hear me, I'll ask another question, but I couldn't hear you at the end of that one. So I wanted to ask you whether there is a silver lining anywhere in here. You mentioned earlier on, and we have known about several other viral illnesses that seem to lead to other post-viral conditions like chronic fatigue, there's now a lot of money and investment in dis- in finding out about long COVID. Do you see that as a possibility for learning more about chronic fatigue and other uh, conditions that are supposedly post-viral?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Every penny of that $1.15 billion, and we worked actually to make sure that it became part of the language of the purpose of the spending of that $1.15 billion is that it help every chronic disease community, because there are too many who have been ignored for far too long, and no, they haven't gotten the research that they are due, the Lyme disease community, the um, chronic fatigue community, I, I could go on, but we will all rise together as a result of this investment in long COVID. Um, and. Let me assure anyone in any other one of these patient communities, we have your back. We are your partners. Um, And I'm horribly sorry that it took this to bring it to the forefront. But if that could be a silver lining, then let it be.
1: That's wonderful. And how optimistic, what's the future of Survivor Corps as you look ahead?
0: It's so hard to say. Um, I think that a few months ago, I was thinking about ramping down in the fall. I don't know that that's a possibility anymore. Um, We'll see where the virus takes us. But at the same time, we have hundreds of thousands of people who are relying on us to push the needle forward and push this research and be the conduit between the patient community and the scientific and medical community so that we can alert them to what is going on on the ground. We have been the canary in the COVID coal mine since day one. We are the ones who informed the medical community about COVID toes, about all of these other symptoms. And that's what we are doing right now with these neurological symptoms. We actually presented it to the NIH Grand Rounds two weeks ago, and we are starting this study with Yale. We are relentless in pushing these issues forward and getting the science done so that we can find therapeutics and find relief for people. And if you are listening, and if you are having these symptoms, please know, have hope, okay? Have hope. I know it seems bleak, but we are working so hard on your behalf, and we will
1: get there. Hold on. Hold on. Diana Berendt of Survivor Corps, thank you for that hopeful finishing message and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. That's all we have time for today. If you want to know more about programming coming up on Washington Post Live, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. I'm Frances Steed Sellers and thank you so much.